If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Welcome. This is going to be where we'll interview people and look at the intersection of the magic of horsecraft and the magic of resilience. So we're going to look at what it takes, what it takes to connect with horses like a wizard, like one of those magicians we so admire as we look at them from the outside. We're going to find out what it takes to find joy in your shitstorms, which is how I define resilience. <laughs> and we'll look at what it takes to accomplish things that from the outside look impossible. And what do those things have in common? Well, it turns out that at the intersection of finding joy in your shitstorms and connecting with horses and being resilient, there are some ingredients that you need. The first is a belief. A belief that anything is possible. And so the first thing we're going to do is interview people that you would normally put way up on pedestals and find out that really we're all the same. People who seem to perform works of magic, whether those are miracles of resilience after bad falls, broken backs, you name it, any sort of major shitstorm, or whether they are wizards in the realm of horsecraft, which is my background, and they overcome and jump literally obstacles we just can't imagine doing, we're going to find out what it took, what their daily lives are like, how they feel. And we're going to find out that really, at the end of it all, we are all the same. And who am I to tell you about any of these things? Well, I'm Paige Lockton Wild, and my background was that initially I seemed to be steeped in the magic sauce. I had a facility, an ability to connect with animals like a magician. Well, I got that way because I was the vet's daughter. And a veterinarian's daughter is a lot like a farmer's daughter, but with tools. So the tools that I developed as the veterinarian's daughter enabled me to soothe traumatized animals. Because on any given day, I would be called into action to immobilize an animal for a procedure, and my dad might shout something like, Now you hold on to this mare and don't you let her kick me. I'm going to be up to my armpits in her asshole. Hmm, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you should know that as a veterinarian, he would pregnancy test mares. And that does involve reaching inside of them through their rear end and being literally up to your armpits. And it does put you in a pretty vulnerable position. <laughs> uh, so at 
usually when he would shout something like that, he would be handing me um, a tool or an implement called a twitch. And a twitch is something that you apply to a pressure point on a horse's nose to put their nervous system into a shutdown state where they freeze. Kind of like, is it wombats that freeze? Those animals that faint? <laughs> they, they freeze and they don't move. And I always felt kind of sorry for them and like I didn't need it and I would inevitably loosen it and take it off and they would still stand for me. Whether they were getting preg tested or having an x-ray of a badly wounded leg, I seemed to be able to soothe these traumatized animals. Um, that ability was also tested in my riding. So as a young rider, I have to say, I was really lucky. As the vet's kid, you get access to all the best horses and ponies in the county. <laughs> and I had amazing ponies. And it allowed me to develop a feel of what it can be like to communicate effortlessly, almost like telepathy and almost like magic. And it allowed me to develop a relationship with my first horse, not my first horse, but the first horse that brought me to the top of the international sport of three-day eventing, O'Reilly. O'Reilly, he is and always will be my heart horse. I got him when I was 16 years old and he was a little half-bred Irish draft cross who had come over from Ireland with a background in fox hunting, which means he had to jump whatever got in his way <laughs> across Hillendale in the Irish countryside uh, with little to no help from their riders. They tend to just toss the lines at them and educate the horses to take care of themselves and their riders. So I got this amazing little crossbred horse with great instincts and he would do anything for me. And that saw us get to the top of international sport very quickly. By the time I was a teenager, I found myself training with captains and colonels who had come over from Europe post-war to teach North Americans some of the finer things about horsemanship. And it got me on a scholarship to go to England and Scotland, where I trained with Captain Mark Phillips on the home place of Princess Anne at Gackham Park. So I was riding on castle lawns. It was also the beginning of a lifelong mentorship and friendship with William Micklem, who ran the brand new equestrian center at Glen Eagles in Mark Phillips' name. And I gotta tell you, I'm just some kid from Northern Ontario. Wildly unexpected and amazing opportunities because I seem to have this facility with traumatized animals. And that brought us to the point where we almost made it to the Olympic Games in Spain in 1992, uh, 22 years old. And I have to say a big thank you to the universe for us not making it on the team and remaining as a non-traveling reserve <laughs> in England, because if I had gone, I think it would have finished that little horse. And as it was, I had discovered his depth and what he was willing to push himself to for me. And I didn't want to explore that anymore. 
So I came back to Canada and was puttering away with him, just happy with every little thing he did, not pushing him, when my best friend, my fiancé, Mike St. Denis horse, died. And I thought, hey, why don't you take him? And I gave him to Mike. So Mike and I started a business. We were coaching. I had amazing amazing job working for people who owned show jumpers. We had the world by the short and curlies. We were engaged to be married. I was pregnant. Mike was going to his very first international competitions with amazing success. And then life gave me its first major blow and a test of my resilience. And his, on May 5th of 1995, at 25 years old, Mike was kicked in the head and the blow of a young horse's hoof threw our lives off trajectory. And that's when I discovered what it takes to climb back out of an unimaginably deep, dark hole and find the light again. Mike's recovery was nothing short of miraculous, but I'm here to tell you about what miracles are made of. I witnessed the daily blood, sweat, and tears that went into his getting better. And I witnessed him come back from a point that the surgeons never, ever thought he would see. They really never expected him to live. And thankfully, he lives, he walks, he talks, he chews gum. <laughs> At the same time, he can do a lot of amazing things. He's an amazing person, but sadly, I never really saw Mike again, not the Mike that I knew. And when the people who worked with him, all the neuro rehabilitationists, declared Mike 100% recovered, I said to myself, oh, oh my, I thought 100% recovery would mean I would see the person that I loved again. And this person standing in front of me although amazing, wasn't the person I knew. So I retreated up north with our son, who was born after Mike's head injury, and rebuilt a life, bit by bit. Initially, I never thought I would be happy again. And it was the hardest thing I had ever done in my life, to leave my best friend when he was down. But I, I knew I couldn't stay and that he deserved to be with someone who appreciated him for who he was, not missed who he used to be. So I reestablished a life up north and bit by bit, I found joy. I remember being surprised one day the first time I was laughing <laughs> and feeling light again. And those moments would get strung together, little pearls on a necklace more and more frequently until eventually I was back to life. If this is resonating with you and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our foundation course. Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician making magic with horses. 
a unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible. Now life was different. I didn't think I could afford to take any of those risks again that I took while riding at the international level, and I was trying to be sensible. But, turns out, sensible and I don't really coexist. <laughs> and my plans to return to school and become a teacher and have a sensible life were thrown off course at Fair Hill one day. Fair Hill is an international competition in Maryland in the United States and I went down there with my mom, our best friend Peggy, <laughs> to watch and to heal and to have some fun. And the next thing I knew, I came home with a new supporter and a bunch of horses in my barn. At the competition, I met Denny Emerson. Denny Emerson is uh, one of the fathers of the sport of three-day eventing in North America. Um, he has been to every major games. He has come home with medals. He has coached. He's been an administrator. And he has changed a lot. He's written several books. And um, I'll refer to them more later. So the next thing I knew, I was coming home from Fair Hill. Denny Emerson was vowing to see me get back on the international stage again. We had spent the day watching horses gallop across country. And as they thundered past us over these amazing obstacles, he asked me, well, would you ever want to do this again? And I said, well, of course. Who wouldn't? I mean, honestly. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to ride horses on the world stage? And at the Olympics, I said, but I have to be sensible and uh, it's not in the cards for me. You know, I'm going back to school. And he said, no, you know what? I remember you. You were a star. You've got something really special. And I can help put you back on the map. And he did. It started with um, a few young horses that no one else wanted to ride in his area. <laughs> The horses were misunderstood, shall we say. They were what we would describe as hot, so sensitive and reactive. And one of them had scared one of his working students to the point where they didn't want to ride her anymore. And I ended up with these two lovely horses, Vixen and Sexy Date, in my barn. You gotta love the name Sexy Date. It sounds really funny when the announcer is saying, and here comes Paige Lockton riding Sexy Date riding her sexy date. Anyway, it was funny in competitions. <laughs> um, sexy date was easily retrained. I got on with her like a house on fire and um, she resold. And uh, the other one was a bit more of a project, but that's another story. In the interim, as I seemed to be getting along with these hot horses, Denny had a horse that he had put on the back burner named Speed Axel. 
And he writes about her in his book, um, Know Better to Do Better. And in his frequent posts on uh, Facebook as well. And he writes about her because it was a horse that he admitted he could not ride. Under his touch, she was frantic and worried. And this man is not a horse beater. He wasn't cruel, but he couldn't connect with her. And she writhed under him. She worried under him. And he put her on the back burner. He took it slow. He started just going on trail rides with her and reapproaching things, examining um, horsemanship, uh, natural horsemanship methods like John Lyons and slowing things down with her. But one day when we went out trail riding, he said, I'm going to put you up on my little horse speed axle. He said, don't judge her. When she comes out of the barn, she's going to come out of the barn like a foundered pony, but she'll loosen up. And I got on, and indeed she did feel like a foundered pony. And for those who don't know what a foundered pony feels like, it means she was really short-strided and stiff. And to backtrack a little bit in her story, she had been a racehorse, so she suffered lots of trauma, as a lot of racehorses do. And in her race career, she had flipped over in the start gates and torn a muscle. Um, she had scar tissue that ran right where the girth goes, up between her legs, and across over one shoulder. So she was really tight. She always had to work out of that in the morning when she first started to work. So off we went on a trail ride. Um, I didn't know why he wanted me to ride her, but we ended up back in his jump ring and he had someone set up fences for us. And the jumps went up and up and up. And as it approached about five feet, I said, okay, enough, I'm sold. What are you trying to do here? <laughs> What's... And he said, I, I don't know, I don't know, but you seem to be able to ride her. He said, I, I think this horse, this mare, you know, some horses just need that sort of kissy relationship, he called it, that kissy relationship that girls have with horses, you know? She needs to feel appreciated and loved and, and patted and, and she seems to go for you. He said, why don't you take her home? He said, she's not going to be the one that puts you back at the Olympics and wins you any medals, but she can give you the experience and get you back on the map while you bring along other young ones that will. And so the next thing I knew, I was riding on the world stage again. There were articles about me calling me the comeback kid after everything I'd been through. And I was staying winters in the States and traveling with my young son, Zach, in tow. And in the end, I discovered I really didn't have what it took to compete at the international level and stay on top and work in the business day in and day out. It was taking an effect on me. I was spending more time fundraising and training to keep the show on the road, trying to figure out how to buy a horse trailer I'd been loaned trying to teach and my son was being neglected and my relationships were being neglected and I didn't like who I was becoming. I didn't like how hard I was willing to push a little horse like Speed Axel who came out of the barn like a foundered pony in order to make my dreams come true and I retreated from sport 
and looked for a savior as an aside. That's a really bad way to start a relationship, but we're not going to really get into that today. <laughs> and I started a family with a new man, raised a bunch of children, and carried on running summer camps and um, teaching in the horse industry. I had tremendous success with the uh, young people, but I did give up teaching the summer camps because of how busy it was and the toll it took on our lives uh, while raising children side by side. And so I moved into running the energy business that my husband had. And I would do some teaching on the side, generally to adult amateurs. And it was there that I ran into something and it was a problem that I couldn't solve. I used to talk to my dad about it all the time. So these beautiful adult amateurs who decided to take up the sport because they'd been dreaming about it all their lives and they now had the money and the time to take riding lessons would show up at uh, these farms, and these were farms that I didn't own and I didn't manage the school horses um, because I didn't have my own indoor arena. So I would go to other farms and, and try to teach people there. And inevitably, the expectations that they came with couldn't be met. And the horses were unhappy. And the riders were frustrated. There was something missing. And my dad and I often philosophized about this. What was it that was missing that, that they couldn't get that feel or that they expected unrealistic things? And in their lessons that they got once a week, I couldn't make their dreams come true. And it was partly a lack of horsemanship being taught generation to generation. It used to just be passed down in families. It was something you absorbed through your mother's milk and through the air you breathed. And you watched the people around you and how they handled horses and you understood how they worked, partly by watching and learning, but also through horsemanship clubs. There were pony clubs, there were light horse clubs, and over the years and the generations, I have witnessed the death of those things, and they've diminished to be very small in number. At the same time, there's been this tremendous surge in adult amateurs taking up the sport. So they're coming to the barn without knowing how a horse operates or knowing how it thinks. And that is one of the major things that we want to address. But there was something else too. Even with all of the knowledge, even with all of the research, even with all of the lessons and the money and the time, sometimes there was just something missing. And it would frustrate the horses, it would frustrate the riders, it would frustrate the coaches. We call this something feel. There was feel, and my dad would say, you can't teach feel, it's just not learnable. They either have it or they don't. And it was frustrating enough that I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. I witnessed the horses' unhappiness in their riding schools, and I just decided I didn't need to do that anymore. Taught a couple of friends, basically my friends Daisy and Carly, and that was about it. And I worked in the energy industry. And then I found myself years later at another intersection in life. Life has a funny way of teaching us what we need to know. And I had always wondered what it was that was missing and 
why I couldn't teach the magic to adult amateurs and to others. And I found out. And I found out because I lost the magic. So we'll go back to 2019. It was 17 years after my retirement from sport. And I was at a workshop in Montana with my friend Carmen Theobald. And it was taught by Linda Kohanoff and Rebecca Bailey. The workshop was called Healing the Herd, Connection-Focused Therapy for Therapists and Other Professionals Working with Trauma Survivors and Families in Crisis. Now, Linda is a guru. I had already inherited one of her books from a friend of mine, and um, she had written the book on equine-assisted trauma therapy, literally, <laughs> through years of careful anecdotal study. And she had worked alongside a famous therapist, Dr. Rebecca Bailey. Um, Rebecca is a lecturer at um, the FBI and at Harvard. She helps the world's, and I want to put in air quotes, most traumatized victims. And I put it in air quotes knowing full well that trauma is trauma and there's no such thing as more, more or less. If you've suffered trauma, you've suffered trauma. But I mean, she's famous for helping J.C. Lee Dugard come back to health and happiness. And J.C. Lee Dugard um, was a famous victim because she was kept in someone's backyard for 18 years from the time she was 11 years old and forced to have children with her captor and eventually escaped and is living testament to the fact that you can come through anything and be happy on the other side. So I was at this connection-focused therapy workshop in Montana with Carmen because of an aha moment I had had while training with Carmen. And as I came into it, I was on the heels of two bankruptcies, property loss, homelessness, and separation. And I had a lump growing in my left breast that I wasn't telling anyone about yet because I was waiting for the diagnostics. But it was there and it was growing. And every time I got stressed, which was a lot, <laughs> it thrummed. And I showed up at this pretending all was well. Oh, big mask on. Sure, no, I'm Paige, I'm fine. Yeah, what's a little divorce, you know? Ah, ha, ha, what's a little bankruptcy? Oh, can't hurt me. I was like that Monty Python character. <laughs> Having all my arms and legs cut off. I'm fine, come back here. <laughs> and um, I was expected to be a rock star <laughs> at this thing when it came to working with the horses. So um, Rebecca Bailey was getting to know me. Rebecca is um, the, a psychotherapist that I mentioned, and she's also a horsewoman. And her father had sponsored a rider right up to the Olympic level on the American show jumping team. And she, we had all kinds of people in common. And I was um, there with a riding background um, in sport, while most of the rest had 
maybe some experience with horses or not, but generally we're there as professionals, as psychotherapists. So she kept saying, oh, when you go work with that horse, you're just going to be a rock star. You're not even going to need a boundary setting device. Oh my God, I can't wait to work with you and see you work with, oh, you're going to be a rock star. <laughs> but what happened when she finally got the opportunity to work with me, because there were multiple facilitators, we were three days in at the end of a long day and running late. And I uh, was finally going to go in and have an interaction with a little horse, a Mustang named Cimarron. And all of the horses in these sessions work in freedom. And I was to approach the horse and have an interaction that looked like mutual respect and connection. And <laughs> that little horse ran back and forth and back and forth and back and forth by the inn gate, screaming to be let out. <laughs> <laughs> not wanting to come anywhere near me. At some point, he changed direction, I changed direction, went with him, and he stopped and I stopped, and I just pretended to own it. And was like, yeah, I think that's enough. I think I demonstrated what you wanted to see there. And I came out and bullshitted or bullshat. I never remember what the past tense of that word is. Bullshatted, bullshitted my way through. Um, a breakdown of what uh, I said happened in there. And... Dr. Bailey just looked at me and said, oh, that's, that's not what I saw. She said, what happened to you? Well, that was going to take some unpacking that I wasn't really ready for. <laughs> but what happened was just at the same time as I was outed for having lost the magic with horses, horses fled my touch. I already knew dogs barked at me. I would house sit for friends with animals and they'd be like, my dog never barks at people like this. What's going on? Dogs barked at me. Horses didn't want to come near me. I had lost my identity. Everything I identified by was locked up in my ability to connect with animals. And I was outed in front of all of my new peers and the people that I respected. Thankfully, at the same time as I was outed, it was explained to us. So this whole workshop was teaching the science behind connection. So Linda had been teaching for years that anecdotally, she witnessed when a horse is in freedom and you have a person in a small paddock with them, they will choose to be away from that person if the person is masking. So they're pretending to be something they aren't. They aren't owning an emotion. But if they are congruent, if their outsides match their insides and they own that emotion and they have a, a breakthrough, the horse will show a sign immediately of recognizing that. Lick and chew, which is a sign of release in a horse's nervous system, and approach them. And she noticed that if people were in a PTSD mode, if they didn't feel safe, if sort of their internal alarm bells were ringing, again, the horses didn't want to be anywhere near them. But given the tools to work through something, the horses would approach and connect with them as soon as those people felt safe. So she was 
teaching polyvagal theory and, well, they were both teaching polyvagal theory and all of the science behind our nervous system, how we perceive danger. And it was important to them as therapists because they understood that until someone felt safety and connection, they couldn't help them as a therapist. And that there were actually things going on on a nervous system level that they could do as therapists to either impede safety and connection or help it grow. That they could, in fact, regulate their own nervous systems and co-regulate someone else's. We were learning all of this, practicing with some amazing tech by a company called HeartMath. And it will actually show you when your nervous system is in a state of coherence with your heart, your mind and your body working together in optimal level in that place that athletes or musicians know as the zone. And it'll show you that by demonstrating just through a color, you're in the red, ah, that's five alarm fire bell mode. <laughs> you're not really here, maybe you're not mindfully present. Your systems, your nervous system and your heart are not working together in harmony or you're in the blue, you're close, or you're in the green, you're in the zone. And we did these exercises with the horses while wearing these. And inevitably, if we were in the red, um, the sensitive horses, uh, particularly ones with former trauma, wouldn't want to come anywhere near us. But they would trust us and approach us. And they're very naturally curious. And they want to approach someone who is in the green and in a state of coherence. And so as we were practicing these techniques and practicing a breathing technique, this long, slow out breath after a deep in-breath, I had an aha moment. The aha moment was a couple things. One, I had been doing this accidentally before in my interactions with horses, as I used to soothe them and as I rode them. I fell into a habit riding speed axle and those other two hot little horses that Denny Emerson had sent up to me to ride because no one else would. Uh, I'd fallen into a habit of breathing in a rhythm. In through the nose, out through pursed lips, and humming and singing. And there was not a moment around speed axle where the same tune was not always going through my head. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer true. Only I would sing it. Axel, Axel, give me your answer true. I'm half crazy for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you'd look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. <laughs> it was a silly tune, which brings a nice emotion to heart. And it was a rhythm and it was a tone that would regulate my system, and I could test this theory with the heart math technology, and co-regulate hers. So I was regulating myself in competitions where we're asked to do stressful things with horses, and I was co-regulating theirs, and I didn't know it. And that's how I could access my instincts, how we could connect on this non-verbal level, and how things could look really smooth and effortless and almost telepathic, and how I could gain their trust. So I theorized if I could have that magical ability, lose it, and learn to regain it, then that means 
it's learnable. That means feel is learnable. That means that with today's society, where so many of us are struggling with images on the news of disaster and war and climate change, and we're being bombarded by stress and the middle class is getting squashed and there's just so much to worry about, so many of us are medicated to the eyeballs and our nervous systems are in disarray. So as we walk into a barn, and if we're adult amateurs just taking up in the sport, A, we've got to know about horses and how they think and what they need, but B, we've got to show up in a state to be able to connect with them. And they don't want to connect with us if our nervous system is in disarray. So it has become my mission to test these theories and to teach them. So I have spent the last six, well, the last couple of years studying um, and putting these theories to the test. Over the last couple of years, as I returned with that epiphany from that workshop with Rebecca Bailey and Linda Kahanoff and my friend Carmen Theobald, uh, I've been researching and uh, life as it will has handed me some more challenges to test my theories. So I came back in that lump in my left breast. Yeah, it was cancer. I had a double mastectomy a horrific infection, chemotherapy, and radiation, all during the COVID-19 lockdown. I had just moved out of my relationship with my husband and was living in a cabin with a leaky roof on my parents' farm. I had to give up the keys to my vehicle when I couldn't afford to get it roadworthy and I couldn't work because of the cancer. Life really couldn't get much lower. And that's when I discovered that I have a superpower. <laughs> and my superpower is that if I use these tools, I can find joy in a shitstorm. <laughs> so I would wake up every day with this heaviness of being sick and having to treat cancer, but also this heaviness of being alienated from my boys and my family and having to start life over again at a point when I really didn't think I was going to have to start life over again. And if I practiced these tools, I thrived. Doesn't mean it was all sunshine and buttercups was fucking hard. <laughs> Don't mistake me. It was hard. And I can never seem to come up with a better word than hard. It was really, really hard. <laughs> but I made it my mission every day to find some small joy. And it was, oddly enough, easier to do through the chemo and the radiation treatment than it was later when I came home and I had expectations to return to life. So through radiation treatment, I was out of town in a nearby town, um, staying isolated in a room except for during my radiation treatments. And I would seek connection and comedy in the change room. <laughs> So for my first radiation treatment in a series of 25, I went down to the change room, looked in the mirror as I put on this 
awful green, blue, yucky gown and looked at my reflection in the mirror and I looked death in the face. I looked terrible. <laughs> and I went live on Facebook and went, no, I don't know about this gown. Do you think it brings out the green in my complexion and the bags under my eyes nicely? I think it really is quite accentuating my, <laughs> and just was kind of funny and went into radiation that day. And the next day I came down with an alternative outfit. What do you think looks better? And I would put outfits on and off and glasses on and off and then share some small truth about my fear or my life, all from the change room for radiation therapy. <laughs> and I became the radiation fashionista. When I came home and about a, a week later with all my treatments done, I expected to get back to life. And I tried to think of the many ways in which I might reinvent myself. And I quit using the tools because I didn't need them anymore, right? Um, so I wasn't using the heart math tools. I wasn't meditating every day. And I was trying to just get back to life and I was trying to plan and I was, I was trying to work and I didn't sleep for eight weeks. At about the two week mark, I called for some sleeping pills. <laughs> At about the three or four week mark, I called and doubled the dose. At about the fifth week mark, I asked them to add some anti-anxiety meds. At about the eighth week of no sleep, I thought I was gonna die. I would get some small reprieve when a good friend of mine who's a hypnotherapist, Rod Kelly, would call and he would hypnotize me and I would sleep briefly after that. But other than that, it was 24-hour day, wakefulness, nervous system shot. Total nervous system malfunction and breakdown. And eventually, I managed to overcome that. And I overcame it using the heart math tools. I essentially put the monitor on in the morning and anytime I noticed it go red, I would do the exercise that they teach us at heart math to turn it back into the green. And then when I noticed it would go red again, I would notice I was in some disaster loop of thinking. So I would be worried about this or worried about that, or I would imagine some possibility of rebuilding my life and then look at all the possibilities where it might fail. And I realized I'd really been living like this for quite a lot of years and was terrified that I wasn't going to be able to make the change. But over and over again, wearing this heart math tool, beyond the scope of what the heart math company and education teaches. Essentially, the tool is to teach someone what it feels like to go into that nice meditative state and to live as much of your life in the green as possible. Because statistically, people who do um, spend more of their lives in the green than in the red in their nervous system have far better outcomes. And those studies have um, covered students and their success in school, um, Athletes, uh, they use this to train nurses to be able to regulate themselves under pressure in emergency rooms and to co-regulate other people. Um, there's all kinds of evidence of it working, but you're just supposed to use it as a tool to train people 
to particularly those type A people like me who are like, yeah, I can't meditate. Oh no, I'm way too, I can never meditate. I'm too busy to follow through all that shit. And oh, you know, I'll never be able to meditate. I was one of those. <laughs> so if you are too, there's hope for you. This tool was designed um, and you can't fool it. <laughs> I could pretend I was in a meditative state, uh, but the tool would show that I was still in the red. And whenever I was in the red, I would take a note of my thoughts. And then they were usually something like, oh my God, I could never, or oh, what about my taxes? Or, oh, I'm going to my ex's place to, you know, just disaster loop thinking. I would stop myself, notice what I was thinking, be gentle about it, um, and think about it another way. And eventually I got to sleep at night and I am rebuilding a life. And I used it to find joy in my shitstorms. And now I'm experimenting using it with riders. So the theory is that those frustrated adult amateurs who are tired of paying their coach to tune up their horse, and they watch their coach, the pro, get along so well with their little horse Flicka, and they can't get along that way, no matter how much money and time and effort they're pouring into it. And also, for those people that look at others who perform acts of resilience and look at them and go, oh, you're so amazing, I could never do that. It's my mission to show you that you could. Because if I could have the magic, lose it, and regain it, then you can learn it. And if I can overcome what I've overcome and show you what people like the ones I'm going to interview can overcome, then you can too. We all have it in us. We don't always know what it takes. So in my interview series, we're going to speak to Carmen Theobald, who will talk to what horses really want from us um, and dive into um, she's the, the queen of horse-human connection. And we'll speak to Leslie Grant Law, who outwardly looks like one of the bulletproof bitches of eventing, and will tell us what it really takes. Um, we're going to speak to Tick Maynard, who will speak to the possibilities. Tick Maynard... Um, has had an incredible life journey and he is currently exploring liberty work to quite an amazing level and he took the time to do a demonstration for me when I was in Florida recently and um, it's just amazing so we're going to open our eyes to the possibilities that we can do it too and what is possible then I'm going to speak to Kim Wallness and Kim Wallness oh she's known as Mother Goose she used to ride a horse called the Grey Goose, who was wildly unconventional back in the day. One of my heroes that I've read about since a teenager, who achieved amazing things on the world stage using really unconventional approaches with a horse that was formerly unrideable. And besides that, she's also the queen of resilience because Kim has come back from an accident that shattered her body as well as the ultimate loss for any mother. She lost a daughter to murder. 
we won't spend a lot of time talking about that, but we'll talk about the reality of what it takes to be resilient and find joy again, and what you have to do on a daily to get there. And then we're going to talk to Denny Emerson. Denny Emerson is the king of owning it. So he has written in his book, in block capital letters, I could not ride her, referring to Speed Axel, and looked back on mistakes he's made with horses so that we don't have to. And he's talked about developing patience and redefining himself. His new book that's out now is called Begin and Begin Again. And it's about starting over. He also knows a lot about resilience because he's also broken um, his neck in a bad fall. And he is the grandfather of sport. He doesn't shy away from stating an opinion. And I'm going to hypothesize with him that if we had a time machine, he and I could go back with the tools I have now and little Miss Speed Axel, and he could ride her too. So I'm thrilled that these people have agreed to speak with me and that you're here to listen. This is the adventure we're on and the mission that I'm on. I have a course that I am developing with my dad about everything you need to know about horses as well as one to go alongside it about nervous system, system management and how to show up so that you can connect with your horse. It's what you need so that your coaches can do something with your riding. You don't need me to teach you how to ride. <laughs> Anybody can teach you how to ride if you can show up in this state and connect with them. So there'll be two courses coming. And this is basically a six-episode experiment to show you the possibilities and we'll follow up with more in the fall so thanks for being here thanks for listening and I just want to send you off with a few messages one we are all the same two anything is possible and three you can do it too you can you have to believe Hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft, where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses, at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, we all want the same things, to be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance. <laughs>